So the year was 1716. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. It's a great name. <laughs> a very wealthy nobleman from Germany stood in the art museum, captivated by this painting that hung before him. Zinzendorf had grown up with a typical nominal Christian piety of his day. But growing up in the noble class, his concern for anyone other than himself or outside the circle of wealth that he had surrounded himself with was best described as indifferent. But now at the age of 16, he stands in front of this painting of the crucifixion of Christ. And inscribed on the painting were these words, all this I have done for you. What have you done for me? His heart was ruined at that moment, changed forever. And soon after, Zinzendorf gave his life to Christ and quickly exploded into a deep and passionate faith in this Savior. Six years later, at the age of 22, a group of Protestant refugees from neighboring Moravia came to Zinzendorf's estate in Hernhut, Germany to seek asylum and shelter from the persecution that they were receiving. Graciously, this Nicholas Zinzendorf account had compassion and allowed them to move in to his estate where they set up shops and houses. Didn't take long, though, for the group to begin having difficulties and quarrels and fights broke out. Zinzendorf joined the leader of the group and they began to pastor these people through these challenges. In light of the tension, the two men led the people of the village to cry out to God. And in August of 1727, the Holy Spirit descends on this village in such an intense way. The entire community was completely and totally transformed like that. Overnight, the entire community was swept into spiritual renewal, and it led to the formation of a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer meeting. They met in shifts to continually be praying around the clock. Amazingly, these meetings lasted 100 years. Can you imagine? 24-hour prayer, 100 years. Several years later, Zinzendorf met a black slave from St. Thomas who pleaded with him and the village at Hernhut to send missionaries to his homeland. It was from St. Thomas. It was said that there were two to 3,000 slaves on this island that was owned by a British atheist. And the owner had said, no preacher or clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he is shipwrecked, we will keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But they will never... They will never talk to any of us about God. I am through with all of that nonsense. So the owner of the island the slave was from. At that moment, the Moravians heard about this island. The mission's bonfire was lit among the 300 people at Hernhut. And two men for the group volunteered to go to St. Thomas to reach the slaves with the gospel. In the eyes of these Moravians, 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa had been brought to an island to live and to die without Christ. 
However, an atheist owner, secluded on an island thousands of miles away, with no possible way for a missionary to penetrate the seemingly impenetrable walls of the island, were not enough to keep the gospel from spreading among these slaves. They would find the way, <laughs> they would find the way in because Jesus had died to receive some from those very tribes and those very people. So these two men volunteered not just to go to the island as missionaries. They volunteered themselves to be sold into slavery so that they could live and dwell among the 3,000 slaves of St. Thomas. And so they did. They used the money from the sale of themselves into slavery to pay for their boat trip into slavery. All to ensure that these slaves had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. As the ship left the pier at Hamburg, Moravians from Hernhut had gathered along the water's edge to say goodbye to these two young men who were in their early 20s. Knowing that they probably would never be seen again this side of eternity. This was to be a lifetime of slavery. The families were weeping. They had obvious concerns about such an endeavor. And they questioned the wisdom of what they were doing. But as the gap widened between the quickly departing boat and the shore. They see their families weeping. Their homes, their friends are leaving left behind. But as their boat departs and the gap widens, one of the boys with his arm linked through the arm of his fellow volunteer slave raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were heard from them at that point. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this became the Moravian motto. As missionary after missionary departed for distant and hostile lands, it became their custom, their motto, and their missionary cry. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This is one of my favorite missionary stories. I love the Moravians and their passionate, bold, and fearless commitment to seeing the worth of Jesus Christ be displayed in their willingness to give all for the sake of his name. There are a thousand different options in the scriptures for them to choose as their motto. Paul in Romans 15 chose Isaiah 52 as his holy ambition. Those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. That was Paul's driving scripture that drove him to go and to be this pioneer missionary. The greatest missionary heroes that we long to replicate were captivated. They were gripped by the promises and assurances found in the word of God. It drove the Apostle Paul to a life of deep suffering in order to see the gospel spread among the Gentiles. It led William Carey to spend 41 years in India, never to return to his homeland in England, in order to plant the gospel seed among the unbelieving millions of India. It led Adoniram Judson to stay in Burma for nearly 40 years, enduring 17 months of imprisonment and torture, the loss of two wives and seven of his 13 children, just so the gospel would go and be planted in Burma. 
And it led the Moravians, numbering over 2,000 people over the span of 150 years, to sell themselves into slavery, to go to such remote and unfavorable and neglected areas in order to see that Jesus would receive the reward for his suffering. And it was this morning's text, Revelation 5, that they clung to as their promise. Their missionary motivation and their vision for the future. The Moravians felt that the worship of Christ was better than their own lives. To the end that this slain lamb that we will read about in a minute was rewarded with worshipers from every tribe. And language. And people and nation. They gave their lives to see that this proclamation in Revelation 5 become reality. This sets the stage for our text this morning, which is based primarily in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. So, if you have your Bibles, or look on the screen, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. We're going to look at Revelation 7 a little bit later on. My hope this morning is to show you that Jesus' death and resurrection brings ethnic and racial diversity and harmony forever. And that's going to be our main focus this morning. But I also hope to display just a piece of this stunningly beautiful tapestry that God is weaving together with his children from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want to show you why this matters to us today, especially in our current political and cultural context. So our text this morning is Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 through 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now a little bit of context here. In Revelation 5, a dramatic scene is unfolding. It's not a long chapter. But there's a dramatic scene that's happening. The father is sitting on his throne. And John begins weeping when he realizes that there is absolutely no one in the world, living or dead, that is worthy enough to take the scroll out of the father's hand. Now in this scroll, we have the unveiling of every promise, every plan, every fulfillment, every judgment of God in all of history. It is the grand revelation of all that we wonder and hope for. And no one is worthy enough to open it or to break the seals. And John is weeping uncontrollably at this reality because if the scroll doesn't open, all of our humanity's hope, every Christian's hope is gone. And then the great revealing of Jesus Christ happens. This lion and this lamb are joined together to be this worthy one named Christ, named Jesus. He walks up to the Father, he takes the scroll from his hand, and the entire cosmos, every being in the universe, erupts in worship and adoration and praise of this one who is called worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and to set into motion 
the fulfillment of every one of God's promises. It is an amazing picture. It's an amazing chapter. But what is also revealed to us is why Jesus is the only worthy one to take and open the scroll. We learn that the cross of Christ is the central event in all of history. In the beginning of verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now let's stop there for a minute. Jesus is worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. The first part of this declares the worth of Jesus to be the only one to take the scroll and to take control of all of history. The declaration is Jesus is worthy. Now let's read the next part of verse 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The declaration's already been made. He is worthy. But why? Why is he worthy? Answer. Jesus' worthiness to take control of history by taking the scroll from his father, opening it, breaking its seals, is centered on the fact that he was slain. That he shed his blood. That he died on the cross. If he doesn't die, he doesn't shed his blood, he's not worthy to take the scroll and to put into motion the fulfillment of all of the promises of God that we hope for. If he doesn't die, that doesn't happen. So the first two parts of verse 9 show us something immensely important to us as Christians and to the entire world. The cross is the central defining event and all of history. It is this act that, Je- that deems Jesus as worthy to be the one to take the scroll. Not only do we see that his death is the defining moment that makes Jesus worthy, but we also see the effect of this death. Let's look at the third part of verse 9. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. He died as a ransom. That is, he died to purchase a people for God. Purchase them from what, though? Galatians 4 shows us exactly what we are purchased or redeemed from. I believe I have that text in the slide, too. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. According to this text in Galatians 4, He redeemed us, And purchased us out of slavery. The result of that purchase was not only that we were freed from our slavery to sin. Which is what all of Romans 6 tells us. Which is incredible in and of itself. That's one thing if we've been redeemed and purchased out of slavery. That's incredible. But he also made us children of God. He died to adopt us into the family of God. He is transforming our DNA into that of God himself. 
So when we look at the first half of our text in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, we can see that Jesus is deemed as the one who is worthy to take complete control over all of history and the fulfillment of God's promises and judgments. Why? Because through his death on the cross, he ransomed, he redeemed, he purchased a people for God. He not only ransomed them out of slavery to sin, but he made them his very sons and daughters. And not only did he ransom them and make them his very own sons and daughters, but he also made them kings and priests who will reign with Christ forever. We see that at the end of verse 10. We're free from slavery, adopted as sons and daughters, made kings and priests. That is the effect of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's amazing. We see an incomprehensible significance to the work of Jesus. But we also see an incomprehensible cost. The death of the Son of God. This is what makes Jesus worthy in verses 9 through 10. He laid down his life willingly for you and for me to be ransomed out of slavery to sin, to be adopted into the family of God. And if that weren't enough, he also made us kings and priests to co-rule with Christ. And it cost the Father his very own son, his only son, to accomplish this task. But to this point, we've left out, for the most part, a very important piece of this puzzle. The who. If you can actually go back to Revelation 5. Who did, Jan- who did Jesus ransom for God? For whom did Jesus die? We find the answer to this question in the first part of verse 10. Jesus died to ransom a people for God from every tribe. And language. And people. And nation. He died so that he would ransom a people for God from every culture. Every race. Every ethnicity. Every people group. And every nation on the face of the earth. His death was global in its reach. It was not just for one country, for one group of people, or just Israel, or just America. Christ brought the blessing, the, 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 the blessing given to Abraham in Genesis 12. He brought that blessing to bless all the peoples of the earth. He brings it to everyone. He makes it real. He fulfills it. To every people group on the face of the earth. That was the scope of Jesus' death. In Nepal, where my ministry operates, and all of you know that we are planning to go to and move to, Hinduism is the dominant religion of the country. 86% of the country adheres to the Hindu faith. But inherent in this, this system, in, in Hinduism, is this system of belief. It is a system of determined worth called castes. It is one of the evilest systems of societal oppression that can be imagined. You can be born into levels of high influence, 
high worth, high social worth and social status. These people are called Brahmins and are made up of priests and holy men and other dignitaries. Or you can be born into absolute poverty under complete isolation and complete oppression. These are the lowest castes, these are the lowest of the low. They are called Shudras or Dalits, which literally means untouchable. These are made up of the lowest that society can contain. These untouchables are the bottom dwellers in society. They literally cannot be touched by anyone in a higher caste. They are so low, according to this system, that if, if a Dalit's shadow touches someone in a higher caste, they could be beaten for it. In your caste, typically your tribe. If you are among the Chetri in Nepal, for example, you are high caste. You are government, military, or uh, law enforcement. If you are a Dalit or a Shudra, you are the lowest of the low, who are given the worst jobs in the worst areas. This is where we get the word outcast. They are so low that they are even considered to be outside of the caste system. Your access to life's necessities and your future are determined by the caste that you are in. And the reason that you are in a low caste, according to the Hindu belief system, is because of something you did in a previous life. There's no redemption for that. You can't even prove it. It's just the way it is. This is inherent in the entirety of Hinduism. And it is nearly impossible to break out of it. It is nearly impossible to move up in the caste system, but you can certainly be moved down. Especially if a high caste person marries a low caste person. You're automatically demoted to that caste. However, your caste determines your worth. And this is largely broken down into the people groups in Nepal. And same thing in India as well. But this is where the beauty of Christianity comes to life. And the global effect of Jesus' death and resurrection are most powerfully displayed. And it's the reason why I believe that Christianity is spreading throughout Hindu regions. Jesus came to die. God's very Son. The radiance of the glory of God. And the imprint of the very nature of God. God Himself. God come in the man form. In the human flesh. Comes to earth to die. Not just for those in high castes. Not just for those in affluent nations or secular nations or democratic nations or communist nations, but comes to die to redeem those from every single tribe and nation and people and language on the face of the earth. No person or tribe is too low. No nation or language is too lofty. The universal message is the same. All people remain under the wrath of God. And all are in desperate need of a Savior, a Redeemer. And that Savior and that Redeemer came to die as a ransom so that some from every tribe and language and people and nation will be redeemed. And not only just redeemed, but made to be a child of God that will one day reign as a co-heir 
with Christ Himself. Every one of them made in the image of God. And now with the ability to become a member of the very family of God. And will enjoy an eternity of life, joy, and satisfaction that the Son of God Himself enjoys. Forever unending. This is amazing. And the whole world needs to hear it. Jesus shed His blood for it. In northern India... 70% of the Christian population is untouchables. 70%. And now they not only face oppression and near total exclusion from society because of their caste, but Christian untouchables now face even more oppression. The Hindu system has made the lowest caste imaginable now even lower because of Christ. And it will be incredible on that day when the lowest of low will be raised with Christ to reign as a royal priesthood and kings forever. The last shall be first. What hope is offered to a people who not only have no earthly hope, but have no heavenly hope either? According to their faith, they don't. As of today, there are 16,528 distinct people groups in the world. You've heard me throw these numbers out before. 16,528 distinct ethno-linguistic groups. 6,687 of them are considered unreached by this news. A missionary once said, the good news is only good if it reaches them in time. And millions are perishing without this gospel and stepping into an eternity without Christ. But even more than this is the disturbing fact that 6,700 people groups in the world, made up of nearly 4 billion people, do not worship Jesus as King and Lord and Savior. Groups of whom Jesus died and shed His blood To purchase a people for God from. Does he not deserve. The worship from each and every one of them. This question plagued the Moravians. And they gave their lives to see Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Ushered into reality. So that Jesus would receive the reward of his suffering. Namely a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That will worship God and co-rule with Him. But I, I want to take a minute here to talk about the racial implications here. Because honestly, the implications jump out of this chapter in Revelation. We are at a turning point in the United States right now that is hard to fathom that we are here. The 60s brought a revolution in the civil rights movement when hatred of African Americans was the norm. Not just in the South, but prevalent here in the North as well. For 200 years in this country, slavery, oppression, they were the norm. It was a normal way of life. And hatred based simply on the color of one's skin. And it continues in many places today, despite enormous progress in the cause of civil rights. Now, in 2016, racial tensions are mounting Once again, 
it's, it's hard to believe that we're back at this point. Or maybe we never left the point. I don't know. But certainly uh, the black community and the white community, people in the white community are rising up against this racial inequality that we see on various levels. And for good reason too. Sadly, the church at large has been silent on the issue. And the past 200 years has an awful record of participating in racism and even justifying it theologically rather than rallying against it. And even more, when I have observed the church and even my own friends, I don't mean specifically this church, I mean the church at large. Even my own friends and family speak with such indifference in vitriolic language towards those of different races and ethnicities, it makes me ashamed sometimes of how the church has missed the fact that Jesus died for every race. And the church, of all people and institutions, should be at the forefront of the battle for racial diversity and racial equality. Because every one of those from a different race are not only made in the image of God, but the same blood of Christ redeemed them and made them children of God. Not only that, according to our text, Christ made us a ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what else has He done? Verse 10, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He made us kings and priests, co-rulers and worshipers that will reign together in cultural, ethnic, and racial diversity that completely reflects the beauty, the diversity, and infinite colorfulness and creativity of our Creator. And we should rejoice in this spectrum of diversity. We should rejoice when we look around our church and see Varieties of skin color and hair color and ethnicities. It should make us glad to see. It reflects the greatness of our King to have worshipers not just from one race and ethnicity, but from tens of thousands that have existed since the beginning of time. To see Christ praised and worshipped in thousands of different languages. Accompanied by thousands of musical instruments. To enjoy fellowship with believers from all around the world. Around different foods. Cultural foods. All giving thanks to our God. To observe moments of remembrance of Christ's work on the cross with different traditions. All of these display, all of these display the glory of God in mighty ways by displaying His infinite characteristics and beauty. Infinite characteristics, color, and beauty represented in the tapestry of God's people. Total and complete diversity in total and complete unity. As children under one Father. And we should fight to see this now. In our hearts, and in our churches, and in our politics, and in our everyday lives. Because Christ 
died to redeem a racially and ethnically diverse kingdom of priests that will reign together forever. When it says in Revelation 5-9 that Christ was slain and by his blood purchased people from every tribe, it's not by chance that there just happens to be some from every tribe as though he looked forward to the future and it just so happened that people from every tribe believed in him. That's not what's happening in this text. Jesus shed his blood to purchase a people for God. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And John, and John said that Jesus said that to gather into one the children of God who are cat, scattered abroad. But John's talking about why Jesus died. He died to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, this was the design of his death. He bought a people who were scattered all over the earth among all the peoples of the world. By his blood, he obtained them for himself. And he must bring them also. If the purchase of a people from every tribe is intentional and designed by God and isn't simply the result of human chance, then the implications for racial and ethnic diversity and harmony among Christ's people are huge. The implications for us are huge. God intends to have a people not just from three or four or four hundred ethnic groups, but from all ethnic groups. Just look at the scope of people, tribe, language, and nation. This covers the whole range of ethnic and racial diversity in our world. There is no race, ethnicity, nation, or language who is outside of the effect of Jesus' death. So Christian, check your heart towards those of a different race and different ethnicity. Do you cringe or get angry when a foreigner or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Sheikh or a Syrian refugee moves into your neighborhood? Or do you wonder and long to see them, see the revealing of whom God has redeemed from among them? Do you feel love towards them as created in the image of God, our God? Or do you feel contempt towards them because they are different, have a different skin color, or speak a different language than you? Or wear different clothes, or eat different foods than you? Beware of your ethnic jokes. And beware of your Facebook posts. And beware of your prejudices against foreigners and other races and other religions. And beware of your hatred of those who come into our towns in cities from different lands. For our God is sovereign over them. And it is our God who brought them. It is our God who is the mover of peoples. No matter whether they arrive here legally or illegally. No matter whether they arrive here by a dream for a better life or because their better life was ripped from them unexpectedly. 
It is our God who gave his son's life in order to redeem from each of those groups of people and nation and race and language to be his children, to reign as kings and priests with Christ forever. Do not miss the diverse beauty and universality of Jesus' work because of political or nationalistic prejudices. This is not your home, Christian. This is not your home. The scriptures tell us that we are sojourners and exiles whose citizenship is in heaven before we are citizens in this land. And traveling with us as sojourners are people from every tribe and language and people and nation that are all going to the same eternal kingdom that we that we are and will be worshiping and co-reigning with the same king that we will be. We will be unified in Christ, in truth and in love, woven together as family by the blood of Jesus. There will be no levels of race, no division of ethnicities. We will be brothers and sisters Children of our God ruling and worshiping side by side with no tension because of our ethnic differences. It is those differences that bring glory to God because of the sheer magnitude of his finished work and those differences tell the story of an infinite God. This past Friday night brought the opening ceremonies of the 2016 Summer Olympics. I don't know if any of you watched it, It is my favorite thing to watch in the Olympics. Sports are great. I love opening ceremonies. On display were 207 countries gathered together, unified by the glory of their athleticism and their national pride. It really, it is an incredible display of the vibrant diversity of our planet. Thousands of people gathered from all the countries of the world, marching with their flags and their unique cultural dress, displaying the spectrum of colors of of skin and hair and clothing. And it's just a beautiful display. It's a joyous celebration. It's a beautiful celebration. I love watching it. But it isn't entirely accurate. I mean, 207 countries gathered together is nothing to shrug at. However, it's easy to look at that display and think that every nation in the world is displayed there. But when the Bible speaks of every tribe and language and people and nation, it is not referring to the 207 geopolitical countries that we see in the Parade of Nations in the Olympics. It is referring to every individual distinct and unique ethnic group on the face of the earth. Don't think 200. Think 16,000. And those are the nations that exist today. It does not include the thousands of nations that came before us. Just imagine that parade of nations that you watched on Friday night, represented by a people from 16,000 different nations. What we read in Revelation 5, the revelation of Jesus as the worthy one, The worth of Jesus because he shed his blood. The redemption declared of a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. 
These are all centered on one thing. The proclamation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Meaning it is the declaration of what Jesus did. Two chapters later, Revelation 7, we finally see the presentation of the finished work. The presentation of the reward of Jesus' death and resurrection. We see the picture of all that the Moravians longed to see and why they would give their lives. They see representation from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is what all of our pioneer missionaries hoped and longed for and what we should long for. This is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One day, a great multitude will gather. Imagine the parade of nations represented by a people from 16,000 or 20,000 different nations. But it will be made up of a number that nobody can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And that great multitude will not be gathered together to celebrate their athleticism or their national pride. No, they will be gathered together in the stunning display of diversity like no one has ever seen, especially not in Olympic Games or any other world gathering. They will be joined together displaying the glory and the greatness of our God. And they will be singing in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They will not be singing of their strength and their endurance. They will, not, they will not be singing of their own glory and accomplishments. They will not be carrying the flag of their nation in nationalistic pride. They will be singing for the glory of Jesus Christ who died and through his blood purchased a people for God from every tribe and nation and people and language. I just want to point something out here as we close. Has it ever occurred to you that you are in this picture? If your faith is in Christ, when you read Revelation 7 on the screen, has it ever occurred to you that you're in there? That's a picture of you if you believe in Christ. Every ministry you do here, every missionary you support and send, every prayer, every disciple that you make is to one end. To see Jesus Christ worshipped forever by a people from every tribe and nation and people and language. And every ministry effort and every disciple you make is to the end that this great multitude that we read here becomes reality. Everything you do as a church should have this vision in mind. 
seeing the vision in Revelation 7 and all of its diverse beauty and unity. The aim of missions is to see the gladness of the peoples of the world in the greatness of our God. John Piper said that. Isn't that what you see here? Do you see the gladness? Do you see the worship? Through the death of Christ, racism and ethnocentrism are destroyed for a better and eternal reality. Blood-bought, ethnic and racial diversity and harmony. Unified in truth and love, worshiping Christ and co-reigning with Him together forever. As John Piper describes, it is all aiming at the all-satisfying, everlasting, God-centered, Christ-exalting experience of many-colored, many-cultured worship. An aroma that delights the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, I love this picture. Lord, and I I love to see the diversity joined together in unity in Christ. Worshiping you for the blood that you shed to purchase us. Oh Lord, I pray that this church works to the end of seeing this vision in Revelation 7 become reality. Everything we do, Lord, we're blessed to this end. That the slain lamb may receive the reward of his suffering. Eternal worship, eternal praise, eternal glory by a people who are eternally joyous in him. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.